to the religious system of Rome, but also Rome in retaliation, in fear, uh, standing aghast at what's happening to their splendid system of worship and all of the gods of Rome uh, and the various idols that people have in honor of those gods are they're beginning to fall by the wayside to the worship of a crucified Jew. Imagine the threat that they must have felt and the ambition they must have had to exterminate and extirpate and exasperate these Christians, as they were being called. They began to accuse the Christians of many things, whether true or false, and a legally sanctioned effort was underway by the end of the first century to get rid of these people. Those are our brothers and sisters. And the things that are being said in the book of Revelation are being said to them. They're being written to them and for them. And the context is to be understood in their receiving this message. However, as with the entirety of Scripture, when we're reading messages from God to His people, we know that if we obey the gospel also, we become His people. And that in any setting, in any place, at any time in the world, when we are in similar situations, He's speaking to us too. And so we know that we can take some of these things from the book of Revelation and apply them. We may not be able to understand perfectly every symbol and exactly what it meant, I believe they could, or God would not have spoken in such a way. I believe they could. It's a little harder for us, perhaps in some ways, historically not being there, but I'll tell you what, we can get something from this book. We can get many things from this book, and the main thing we're going to get from this book is we win. We win in the end. No matter what happens to you, no matter what befalls you in this life, Christ is in the midst of his people, and he's victorious because he's raised up from the dead, and he said, I will raise you up too in the last day. So whether he comes to your rescue now, or in the next week, or month, or year, and alleviates your pain and your suffering, or whether he waits until the day that you're translated, and you go to be with him in paradise, Sam, you win. And so he's saying, hold on tight. Hold on tight. There'd be nearly 200 years of persecution to follow. So this book, which is about God saying to his people, take comfort, I'm going to judge Rome, does not mean that he alleviates all of their suffering. In fact, as we talked about last week, history then looking back reveals what they did not know at the time, and that is that the martyrs, the blood of the martyrs, as one writer said, was the seed of the kingdom of God. Another said it was the fertilizer that spread the kingdom through the empire. The more they persecuted Christians, the more people were turning to the faith. And that is because they saw a fearless people convicted that there is a man named Jesus Christ who was sent from heaven to die for them and that he was willing to die for. And they were going to die for him. And people said there's something to this. These people aren't crazy people. These are my neighbors, these are my friends, these are my co-workers. These are people who have been severely mistreated. Yes, some of them turned in. Yes, some of them lied, as we'll see in some of these letters, and said, oh, we're not, we're not Christians. Some of them did. They may have escaped the sword, they may have escaped the persecution of Rome, but they don't escape the eye 
of the Almighty God. And so how does God begin his judgment on Rome? He writes letters to his churches first, and he wants to know, are you with Rome? Are you with me? So Craig read to us this passage that if judgment begins first at the house of God, it will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel. These churches are located in what is modern Turkey, but it was called Asia or Asia Minor back then. Ephesus is right next to where it says John is here. He's on that little island called Patmos. It's their Alcatraz, their version of Alcatraz, and he's been banished to that island. But he has some freedoms and he's writing. Christ came to him and delivered this revelation from God. And he said, give it to my servants in these churches. And these are the churches that are there. And so he sent these letters, uh, this revelation uh, to these churches all in one volume because they were to get their own letter, but they were also to get the entire book. And so they were, they were receiving this volume, and this is where this took place, in a historical place, at a historical time, that we can read about with real people in real places. This is not just all an allegory or all a legend or a myth. This is part of God's word to his people. And he began it by writing letters to his children, always first his children. Blessings first always to his children. Judgment, accountability, always first to his children. Just like if you're a parent, you've raised children or are raising children, you realize that when there's squirmishes between your kids and the neighbor kids, you can't always do something about the neighbor kids. But you can do something about your kids, right? My kids hated that. But I know, but I'm not, I'm not their dad. I'm your dad. And so, what could you have done differently? You know, and I held my kids accountable for what they did. And that's what he's doing here. He's coming to them and saying, where are you? And here's what I see. Here's what I see. It's fascinating that he would begin this way. We see it all over the place. I, well, I put up uh, this passage from Romans 2. God will render to each one according to his deeds. God is not partial. But he says in there, indignation and wrath to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. But also glory, honor, and peace to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. His children first receive the blessings. Acts 3.26, to you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from your sins. Now look at Hebrews. Therefore, since he did that, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we've heard, lest we drift away. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? God expects of his children to know what they've gotten into and the blessing that is theirs. For the time has come, Craig has read for us, for judgment to begin at the house of God. If it begins with us first, will it be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So what does God want to do? He wants to say to these seven churches, here's where I see you. Here's your assessment. Now, if there was need for five churches, there was need, great need, for repentance. He says, repent. Or else, in Matt's words, you'll fall under the same judgment and condemnation as Rome. Peter wrote a letter, and he talked about Christians being condemned and he said that God had created hell for the devil and his angels, as if to say, you have no part there. That's not why God created you. 
but you'll end up in the same place if you want to act like the devil or one of his angels. And so he's writing in the same vein to the Christians that are in these seven churches in Asia. Here's some characteristics I want to point out because I want to look at just one today, Ephesus. But I want to look at a couple more next week or look at some characteristics of some others next week. But this week, oh boy, this is a big message. It's really relevant in my view to churches today in a very materialistic society in particular. Very relevant what he says to Ephesus, but all of them are relevant. So, but rather than do a series and, and include each church, next week we'll look at some of the characteristics of the others. But for now, know this. Here are some of the things that you see in the letters in general. Christ introduces himself to each church using one of the characteristics that is described about himself in the vision of chapter 1. So, for example, uh, he's dressed in a, a long robe and girded about the chest with a golden band in one. He's, he's priestly, a royal priest, okay? And he wants to introduce himself that way to one of the churches. And the reason for that is, is so that they get something about him that they need in order to repent and get things right. And so I think there's relevance in the way he reveals himself a characteristic to each church. And also the way he closes the letter may well, uh, to him who overcomes, I will may bear relevance to that. We'll talk about that more later. Jesus addresses each church as one body of believers. He charges the entire congregation to resolve the issues of a few. So in each case, he says, I see that there are those among you who are doing this and that and the other thing. Repent. That's a substantive. That's like saying, you all repent, or else I will come to you all and remove your candlestick, in this case in Ephesus. Okay? And so, the sins of a few were to be dealt with by the whole, like a family. What else would you expect? Like a family, that it affects all of us. We all love each other, and so the sins of some should stir all of us to respond. But, obviously, he is calling upon elders who shepherd the flock and pastor the flock, and we know Ephesus had elders to perhaps take lead in some of these areas, but all Christians are held accountable for how they respond to the sins of others. Some are getting swept into it. And so what's really interesting is that he sees not only one body, but he does see individuals, but he calls the whole body to repair the problem. Isn't that interesting? Just like you read in the letters in the New Testament, how we work together as a body and how we're a family. He never speaks of dividing the body. Y'all need to get out of there because these people are doing this wrong. Never talks about leaving, casting them away. He talks about restoring, purging the sin, loving the sinner, as we say. He expects elders and all the members to preserve that family dynamic through genuine faith and sincere love, which is the hard work, right? That's the hard work. The easy work is to kind of look the other way and say, well, somebody needs to deal with that. The leaders need to deal with that. The hard work is us having a sincere faith and love for each other as well as for God in dealing with these things. Holiness is valued over happiness. So here we are in a context where some of these people are going to die. And he doesn't talk to them and say, well, I want you to fix this so you die happy. Or I just want you to be happy. Some of you are going to die. 
He said, I want you to be holy. You need to be right with me. No matter what happens, be right with me. I'm the one who's going to be here for eternity. I'm the one who's calling you into the heavens. And when all this comes to pass, you'll be all right. So be holy as I am holy. All right. Now let's take a look at this church and this letter to the Ephesians. Some call it Second Ephesians. It's the second letter we have to the Ephesians in, in the scripture. A little background. When Paul introduces Christ to this city in about 54 AD, Ephesus was the queen of Asian cities, politically, uh, religiously, uh, and otherwise. Also a great tourist attraction. It was a commercial trade route on the Aegean coast with a bustling economy and a focal point of Greco-Roman culture. It was also home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, or Diana, as she's called uh, in their language and in the book of Acts. Paul had great success in Ephesus, and although he received the usual cold uh, welcome from some of the Jewish leaders in the local synagogue, uh, he won over many of them and also some Gentiles, and he moved his base from the synagogue to a school of Tyrannus. Tyrannus is the man's name, the school of Tyrannus, and taught for two years there. So he was there for a total of three years until it is said in Acts 19.10. Listen to this. How much success did he have? Until all Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So that tells you something about the city. Paul stayed there, right? worked there for two years and all Asia in that map area heard about it so you know people were coming and going to Ephesus for for business for pleasure for worship of the of the goddess etc and they were being channeled in and hearing about these things that were being taught uh, however unwelcome by Rome this just kind of tells you the flow of people through that city Corinth was really similar to that as well but his success was a threat to the local tradesmen who made their living off of Diana worship. There was a silversmith named Demetrius uh, who called a meeting about their diminished fortunes. And really his grudge was with the diminished fortunes, although he said that also, by the way, the name of the great goddess Diana will also be, you know, he was really bothered by the fact that he wasn't selling his idols. People weren't buying anymore, they were laying them down, they were burning their books and everything, uh, their sorcery books and all this stuff. And that meeting, uh, they decided to stir up a mob. And then when the mob occurred in the streets, they rushed down the street, which you can see in this picture. Take a look at this picture very closely. Uh, and they rushed into the theater. This is it, still standing today. That street is about a mile long, and it went down to the port, to the coast of the Aegean. Today, it's about 16 miles to the coast. And that's because over these 2,000 years or so, the silt from Turkey, <laughs> has filled in all of that mouth region of that river uh, that ran down into there. And there's a little river they got to dredge to get to the end of that street, but that used to be the coast. And as you can see, there's nothing but land and mountains behind it. In the day, that was a port. And um, all these people rushed into the theater and they were shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians? Great is Diana of the Ephesians? And they arrested Gaius and Aristarchus, two of Paul's companions. And Paul wanted out there. He's trying to get out there. And the, the brethren say, no, no, no. They had him by the shirt tails. No, 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 no. You're not going out there. You're going to end up like them. Well, eventually he did. 
get arrested. He was in jail with Aristarchus, we know, for a time. And uh, he went on his way then finally, moved out of that city. He left Timothy to work in that place. So when you read First and Second Timothy, uh, he says to Timothy, I left you in Ephesus to do this. And we get the context there that he picked up where he took off. And also, his last words to the Ephesians may give some light into when we actually look at the letter here. He said to him, uh, to the Ephesian elders, whom when he passed back through that region later, called to the elders to come about 30 miles and meet him away from Ephesus uh, on the shore as he was traveling back home. And he said to them, uh, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now it's to this church that we're going to take a look at that Paul's parting words to them when he said you'll see my face no more but remember it's more blessed to give than to receive. Remember to support the weak that they were doing really good in some of those things. They really must have took that to heart and were doing really good in some of those areas. So Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians uh, that we have in our scripture, uh, the letter to the Ephesians around 62 AD. And we can see in that letter that they were faithful, that they loved each other very much. And we can conclude from the contents of the letter that there was a functional leadership, gifted members working together toward maturity, which we've been modeling here at Pickerington, right? Camping out in Ephesians, right? And we can see that they themselves have that and they're working towards self-edification of themselves in love. But when Je Jesus prepared his letter to uh, the Ephesians here in the book of Revelation, which may have been between, depending on how you date the book of Revelation, between eight and 28 years later, essentially, depending on that date, there's a fundamental change. However long it was, this happened. Now let's read together Revelation 2, one through eight. Revelation 2, one through eight. Please turn with me there. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, Repent and do the first works, or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, and that's what I've entitled this sermon series, Overcome. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of of the paradise of God. Well, we got something else about paradise there, Sam, didn't we? 
the tree of life that's in the midst of the same one that's mentioned in Genesis, in the garden. Same idea. That there's life to be had here in obedience to Christ. Well, by all practical observances, I know your works. You know, the work of ministry which he set them out and equipped them to do through the leaders in the church in Ephesus, chapter 4, that we've been modeling after. I know your works. I know your labor, that is your tedious, enduring work, the hard work, perhaps, of supporting the weak that he told the Ephesian elders to make sure they did. That's hard work. That requires time, sacrifice, walking with people, serving people continually, supporting the weak. Maybe the weak are the infirmed. Maybe the weak are the poor. But you're also doing laborious work. I see that. I see your patience. You have not thrown in the towel on the faith in Christ. You've not departed because of the work or the persecution. I know he says that you cannot bear those who are evil. It just turns their gut. When people do evil things to one another, it just, it just sickens them. Does it you? It sickens, sickens them. And that's not what they learned in their new life in Christ. He says, you've tested those who have claimed to be apostles. They've come and they've said, well, we also are apostles of Christ, and we say this. And they said, that's not what Paul said. And we saw Paul do various miracles among us, and we know he was from God. What can you do? <laughs> well, I'm just telling you. And they said, nope, we're not going to listen to that. We know that we're established firmly on this ground right here. Boy, that's commendable, isn't it? I mean, that doesn't just take knowledge, that takes some courage. That takes boldness. And they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And we could comment on that and what some of that is. It could be some of the evil deeds. Uh, but it was a sect of people of faith. And possibly from Nicholas, they say, from Nicholas in Acts chapter 6. Who knows? No one knows. But it could be that they were the false teachers as well. He says, God, Jesus said, I, I hate the deeds that they're doing. Why? Why does God ever hate something? Because it hurts people. It separates them from their God. That's when God hates things, is when people are lost, when people are suffering and people are separated from their God. And he said, I hate what they're doing. And you do too. Good for you. It sure seems like the church is doctrinally pure, functionally sound. But here's the problem. Jesus is thinking about their future. And he's also looking down into their heart, and he's saying, look, no matter how hard you're working as a church, how much ministry you're engaged in, there's something missing that's not going to carry you through this persecution. There's something that's got to be there that you've got to have, or else all this work is going to come to naught got to have a heart you got to have a heart for me he said but this I have against you that you've left your first love who's their first love what were they converted by what message who, who would cause someone to change their entire life and live for someone else but Jesus who would that be but him 
What was it when you first heard the gospel message that caused you to repent and come into obedience? Was it not the story of Jesus Christ being the demonstration of God's love for you that he came to this earth and suffered for your sins so that you wouldn't have to? And she said, my, what manner of love that is. Yeah, that's right. And God calls you his child. Wow. I'm a worm. <laughs> and it stirred in your heart and it stirred in their heart a love for God. This book screams victory in Jesus. We sing it, victory in Jesus. My Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me by his redeeming blood. He loved me ere or before I knew him. And all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Not, this is the most awesome church. Look at the stuff we're doing. And man, we are just, we got a name for ourselves here in this community. And I just want to tell you about what we're doing over here and over there. Is that not good? Do we not want that? I want that. But do you see a difference? <laughs> that you can become so active and busy in any good thing that you forget the real reason or the real person for whom, you, for whom you're doing it. How can this be? Well, we see it every day around us. I think we see it in the business world. I think we see it in corporations that are constantly seeking how they can get their, their employees to buy in to the company's purpose, the company's product, and they train them and they show them real results of people using their products. And what they want them to do is go, yes, we believe in what we're doing. We'll be here tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock sharp. And I'm going to do my job to the best of my ability. We see that in the business world. We see it in families. Of all the things that families embark upon, when it begins with two people coming together to become one and the challenge of that, and then in many cases, bearing children, raising children, and, and adapting to the, the, the newness of, of raising children, and meeting those challenges by working together as a team and this is why this is what we've always wanted we wanted to do this and after a year changing diapers and coming home from work and getting pulled out to play the rest of the evening guess who you're not spending time with your partner who you dreamed with your partner who you envisioned all these things with and guess what happens in many cases if you're not intentional you Drift apart. Emotionally, you disconnect. You don't know really what they're thinking. You don't hear what they're praying. You're not sharing your dreams and you're not sharing in every purpose. So that, and you sometimes can drift away from that. Sometimes we do it in the name of providing and we end up dividing. We do it in the name of love, but really we're neglecting. And children, they don't care about how big the house is, do they? I mean, they don't. I grew up, or I was 12 years in Appalachia, Ohio, before I came here. And I saw some stuff that made me go, wow. And these kids are happy. You know? They've got flea bites, and they get lice, and they go to school, and our kids have to come home. We've got to get the lice out. And, and I know where they live down the road, and they want to come and play with our kids. I, <clears throat> Look how happy they are. And that's because... They're loved. That's because they're loved. It's amazing. It just didn't matter. They were happy. 
that they were loved. Uh, the parents in that case had the big thing right. And it humbled me as I was busying myself about God's work with people. And my kids were often wanting to see me more. It, it was humbling. They had the big things right. And that, that's what happens even in church work, even in a relationship with God. We can get so busy that we become detracted, that we become prideful, that maybe we stop growing. And that first love was, I just want to do whatever I can do for Jesus. And I want to read what he has to say every day. Man, I'm just soaking this up. And I, I got to pray to him right now because I really need him. Those are the first works that he told him to do. So he said to them, and you can look in the scripture and see this, verses four, five, six, seven. Remember from where you've fallen. And church, I can't think of a better practice that God has put into place religiously to target our hearts spiritually than coming together on the first day of every week to commune around the table where he says, I'm in your presence. I'll be there. Are you gonna be there? I'll be there. He's here. He's here. He doesn't need to show himself in the flesh. He said, I'm there with you, present with you. I believe that, don't you? And so I recall, as Sam was talking about the crucifixion, as he was talking about the greatness of that act of love, I can recall, yes, that's my first love. That helped me before I got up into the pulpit church. Yeah, that's what this is about. And when I go home, I, whatever happens, Wherever we eat, however bad my order turns out, or whatever my wife may burn, she never burns anything. What, whatever happens, I don't care what happens today. I used to say that the Browns would lose in all time, but they don't lose anymore. Whatever happens, I've got my first love. And my wife knows that she's my second love, actually, and that's pretty good to her. That's pretty good. That's what she wants. Just keep him first. Because when I don't keep him first, I'm a wretch to her. <laughs> I don't love her very much if I don't love Jesus. He's my teacher and my tutor, and he's calling him back. And he's saying, remember from where you've fallen. Repent and do the first works. We sing with the little kids the song, read your Bible and pray every day and grow, grow, grow. Church, I'm just going to say something really cutting and really humbling. If your kids are singing that and they're coming to the VBS and they're coming to the kids' night, maybe you sing it at home. Have they seen you reading your Bible and praying every day? Ouch. Kids, you gotta read your Bible and pray every day just like the cute little song says. And adults, we can fall away from our first love. And some of your children may never have seen you open the Bible in your home, maybe even at church. And some of them may never have seen you pray to God or heard you. Personally, not over, not over the good-looking turkey, mashed potatoes, and gravy. And they wonder, is that how you grow every day? Doesn't seem that important. And Jesus said, that's how it happens. Go do the first works. Fall in love with the gospel story again. I love you. And think about this, would you? Think about the fact that he's coming to them at such a time as this and reaching out to them in love and calling them back to repentance, not because he's mad at them, because he's mad about them. He's mad about them. Return to me. Give me your heart back. 
All of you. Make sure all of you do. Take care of it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you. Work that out, church. He calls him back. And he says, Whoever has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I'll give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You know, when Adam and Eve got ushered out and cherubim with flaming swords stood there and wouldn't let them back in, you get to come in. You get to come in and be in this garden of paradise. It was perfect. Where God was walking in the cool of the shade and talking with you, you get to restore that. He's going to do that for you. What's your job? Hold on. Be patient unto death if that is what happens to you. Even if you walk out into an arena and there's a pride of lions looking at you, it's only moments away. Even if they take you and you know they're going to hang you on a street post and pour fuel on you and light you and use you for a street lantern at night, to him who overcomes, I personally will give you to eat of the tree of life forever. Hold on. Church, hold on to your faith. Hold on to your seats. There's a lot more to be said to these churches. But I tell you, it speaks to me too. I don't know about you, but it's speaking to me. What's important here? Amen. Well, Clay's got a song picked out for us. We're going to stand and sing it. And if anyone needs to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, put him on in faith and in baptism today to become a Christian, that's what you're here for. Let's stand and sing.